there, and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 23 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name's Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have our friend Dick Foth with us back on the podcast. And um, John Ashcroft, um, many of you remember we had a great discussion with him um, almost about a year ago, or maybe a little more than a year ago, around um, leading in turbulent times. And um, just a phenomenal conversation with John. Um, today we sit down and uh, in preparation lead up to Father's Day and have a discussion and conversation about lessons from a father to his son. And this is just a, a book that John had written about the lessons that his father had taught him and um, some challenging lessons and uh, just refreshing. And um, Dick takes the lead on the in the interview today. Him and John have a phenomenal relationship and um, it was just uh, an honor to have them both back on the podcast today. Do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, which is Central Assembly of God in Cumberland, Maryland, Pastor Doug, Doug Seaman, caring for each person, connecting each story, and celebrating each miracle. Well, there's no time better than now to get started, so here we go. Well, here we are on Clarity with our good friend and leader, Aaron, and my good friend and leader, John Ashcroft, sitting in Missouri today. How are you, John? I'm very well, thank you. We have a bright day here. It's uh, it's a joy to be alive. <laughs> Spring has sprung in every sense of the word, so we're in good shape. And you're in dogwood territory, so that makes it even more beautiful. So, yeah, I, I stepped out on my back, stepped out on my back porch, and I could count at least fifty dogwoods in the in the trees uh, fr- from my back porch. So I've got a lot of dogwoods in the forest in which we live. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're talking about Father. This is Father's Day week uh, that this is being uh, presented. And I, I have been deeply impacted by your father. Not as much as you, but your father, for many of us, was was iconic in in a lot of ways, and he was known uh, to us, next generation or generations, as Dr. J. Robert Ashcroft. And I just um, I just like to ask you, for starters, tell us a bit about as much as you have heard secondhand, as you put it of his early years. Where was he born and brought up? What were the influences that you understand in his life? And then we'll jump into your interaction. with. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I wasn't there when my father was born. Now my father was there when I was born. So that's one of the areas in which we had an unequal relationship. He was born in Philadelphia and uh, his father was an, an immigrant uh, from Ireland. His father worked for the railroad, and apparently, I, I don't know exactly what he did for the railroad, but he got injured helping a neighbor lady when my father was a very young person. He was helping a neighbor lady toss some pipes under her home and asked for some kerosene to be sent under so he could uh, thaw some of the pipes, and I think they sent gasoline in instead. Oh my. And so there was a big explosion, and my father's father was burned almost to death. It was bad enough that when 
my father's father in the hospital finally was well enough to walk to the top of the stairs where my father could see his father and see him bandaged up. I'm told that my father exclaimed when he saw the disfigured person at the top of the stairs saying, uh, he said, that's not my father, uh, which is a really sort of troublesome kind of thing. My father's father lost his job at the railroad because of his disability, and he began um, preaching. And uh, I think he was sort of tutored preaching by a guy named McPherson, who was the first husband or the husband of Amy Semple McPherson. And uh, they um, went around uh, with a, a big chart, I think, uh, telling people how times would eventually end. And I'm not sure what the, is that the word, is the word eschatology or something like that that, that defines that? Anyhow, my father's brother, for example, was born in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. So they, once they hit the road in, with a tent and with the chart, my father became an evangelist's son. And I think that uh, shaped him. He had an, a faith and an ability to, uh, to move and to do things without feeling disrupted or without apparently having any insecurity or fear in that regard. So he did not graduate from high school in the original way of doing things and went to went to preaching when he was about 17, I think, and uh, himself. Uh, and there are lots of stories about that. Uh, I have a little farm in Virginia and, and uh, it's near a town called Rixieville. And I, I used to some uh, there are occasions when I would drive to the farm on Sunday morning and just stop at a church on the way to the farm and go into the church. And so I went into the church in Rixieville, Virginia one day and the pastor of the church, I think saw me. I happened to have had at that time a pretty substantial security detail attending me. So the presence of a group of suited FBI agents escorting me into the church made my appearance in the churches somewhat obvious and the pastor said, not everyone knows how this church got started. And he relayed how the church got started as a result of a revival that was conducted by a woman named Sister Brown and who was attended by a young man who assisted her in her evangelism named Robert Ashcroft. So it was a stunning thing to me. I had happened into a church. My father had been instrumental in that church plant and in the uh, other church in the Culpeper, Virginia area. That's the story of my dad. Uh, he, he got his, uh, I guess, GED and his college and graduate school training after I think he had launched him, been launched into the ministry by what he considered to be, and I believe to be a call from God. And, but he didn't let the call, uh, terminate his training. He was forever a student and forever a, 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 a scholar. And so many, so many people uh, knew him as a, as a godly man uh, and a scholar. Um, I, used to, um, I used to refer to him because he went on to school and graduate school, not at a Bible college necessarily, didn't necessarily for undergrad. Where, where did he go for undergrad? 
I think he was at Bridgeport, uh, one of the University of Connecticut schools in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Or, although I think he had done some uh, some things at North Park College in the Chicago area, and then he at uh, New York University for graduate study. So, I mean. Uh, if you grew up as an itinerant evangelist's son, you could probably bop in and out of school in a variety of settings to continue what you needed to do. And I think my dad did. So he, had, he was he was on the alumni association of about not as an officer, but just on their mailing list for a lot of different schools. <laughs> so you wrote a book some years ago. Uh, having to do with lessons from a father to a son. And we'd like to sort of focus on that for a bit here. Why don't you just tell us, for starters, two or three of the key lessons that your dad taught you. And I'll, I'll jump in along the way. I think Aaron will jump in along the way if it's all right. Uh, we'll not try to interrupt the flow, but we may just jump in. So go for it, John. Yeah. Well, you better be interrupting my flow or you might be here for a long time with very little value. Um, I think I wrote a chapter in the book, and this is a 30-some-year-old book, I think, or something close to it. It's over a quarter century old, I think. Uh, and the chapter, I think, was uh, the most important thing my father taught me was that there were more important things than me. Um, I... Uh, my father's understanding of the kingdom, if I can sort of put that in quotes, the kingdom of God, was that a call to the kingdom transcended every other aspect of one's existence. Now, I don't think that means you, you consider it inconsequential if your family is abandoned, but there's a certain fundamental element of trust in that if you pursue what God has asked you to do in faith, um, God will make it possible for you to continue to shape and attend to your family in ways that are meaningful to them. And the one thing that I think is was so important about my father and me, and I could be wrong about this, is that he didn't try to become a child with me. My father's uh, attempt was for him to shape and usher me into adulthood with him. So my, to, and it may have resulted from the fact that we didn't have television in our home until after I got out of law school. So I had relatively uh, been shaped by whatever personal relationships there were rather than video relationships. But, but my father used to invite me into his world by way of um, um, taking me with him in the various ministries he had and discussing those and sharing them with me in a way that made me uh, feel a part of those things so that uh, how old, how I guess it, it how, how old were you well, that, that, that's not, I'd say when I was in the high single digits or in the in the low double digits it became you know when I had a chance I would be with my father and I'm getting to be the high double digits now. I'm talking about, you know, not, not as high as you, Dick, but no, close as you know, I'm only a I'm only six weeks behind you and uh yeah, I'm but it's never to catch you. 
But that, but that's one of the places, maybe the only places that I'm ahead of you, and I really glory in that. I just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, my my the most important thing my father taught me was that the kingdom of God is a transcendent thing, and uh, I think there's a lot of family talk now. And I'm not against families in any respect, but the idea that that the adults need to become children and palsy wowsy with the kids and and all that stuff. My dad wasn't that way. He didn't take me. I don't ever remember camping out with my father. I don't know if he took me fishing once or twice. I couldn't remember a specific time if he ever did. I, uh, but he did take me with him when he was doing the, the Lord's work. And uh, for some reason that, that settled in me and understanding that this was really important stuff. And that's what life was all about, not indulging whatever uh, I might want to be doing. Not that I didn't indulge in a lot of stuff, I mean, because I got very active. But, for instance, I was a high school athlete. I think I had six varsity letters. And I think maybe two, two events during my high school time, my father showed up. Uh, otherwise, he was doing things that were far more important than watching me play ball. And I, I'm glad for that. I'm glad my father felt called to do more important things than to than to watch me with whatever um, success or failure. A lot of failures I had playing ball, but you know, if I was either scoring or fumbling, one or the other, I didn't need my dad watching either one. Did you did you ever talk about that? I mean, not talking about whether you scored or fumbled, but talking about his presence yeah, I, in the ball games. My father was a so um, impressive to me that I felt that it added pressure to my performance to have my father there. I, uh, what if I'm fouling up and, and, and the big guys up there in the stands saying, no, oh, nuts, that's my boy out there losing the game. I, my, my sense was, and I, I had a different philosophy of sports than people seem to have now. Uh, I, I would have been happy had there been no fans at all. I like sports for the, uh, for the competition of it and for the opportunity to try and uh, develop whatever skill there was in it. And I, I wasn't really keen on cheerleaders or brass bands or the people who came as what I called hangers on to perform at halftime. I thought, by golly, why don't they put on a show of their own and see how many people show up instead of coming out here and leaning in on our, our stuff. <laughs> was, was your dad an athlete? Do you know? Did he play sports at all? Or he's he's a child of the Depression, so you don't you don't find a lot of that sometimes in those years. Well, uh, I I think he was capable as an athlete. I I had played catch with my father a half dozen times or so, but I had brothers, you know, and uh, and so he was he was facile enough with a glove and ball that you he didn't look awkward at it. I ran, I think when I was 12 or 13, I ran him in a race one time because I just wanted to see if he could run. And, he, and obviously a grown man can beat a 12 year old. If he can't, he's in real trouble. <laughs> and so is the 12 year old. <laughs> so John, um, you said your dad took you with you and you talked about his stuff afterwards. Now, when people, sometimes people ask me to describe you and uh you know, that's a heavy burden for me. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind, Dick. 
I'm going to be kind. There are people listening. And I say, I say, one of the things that I love about my friend Ashcroft is that he's conceptual. He talks in conce- in ideas. I think you told me once you live in a binary world. And but your father was conceptual as well. Did you did you talk about when you talked about his messages, for example? Did you talk about the concepts or the ideals or what? Or do you remember? You know, I just, there was a unique capacity on the part of my father to unfold a passage of scripture in a way that showed you things you had never thought of before. Oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, the old, uh, you hit yourself in the head, say, that's novel. That's, hey, that sounds right. And so we would discuss why it might be that that would be a proper interpretation and rather than something else and how it related to some other concept, some other place in Scripture. I, I, I think it's pretty easy to, uh, maybe that's the wrong characterization, but it's, it's pretty easy to grab a Scripture and say what it means without reference to the rest of the Bible or to the nature of God. But I think the idea of of harmonizing uh, scripture is one of the challenges. And of course, for me personally, I'm not a preacher, but there are two standards that I want the, any scriptural interpretation to, to, to um, be compared to. One is God in the garden of Eden. Uh, I, I think that, that that's, he, that's a picture of God that's most trustworthy. And the second is Jesus. And uh, when things don't uh, line up with those, I think Jesus was sent to reestablish the identity and nature of God. And he's the representation of what God's all about. So those are the two standards. And I think when you start to discuss things in, in, in that respect, scriptural things or life in general, how do they compare to the way God wanted to treat people in the garden? He he, you know, for instance, I have a pretty weird philosophy. It's a philosophy of fellowship. Uh, it's almost as if God didn't, didn't come to the garden to walk and talk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve so they could fall down and worship. Hmm. It would be that so these are creatures of choice and they would, they would have fellowship. And I think fellowship characterizes Jesus. He didn't say to all his, his uh, disciples, now, now, walk 10 steps behind me and, and don't let little children come and sit on my knee. And, and, and he, he welcomed sort of the fellowship. So I, I sort of have a philosophy of fellowship that relates to how things, in my view, were in the Garden of Eden and in the life of Jesus. And I want to, so when I try to interpret other circumstances, I'm going to say, how do they stack up against these clearest pictures of the nature of God? And Jesus, you know, at the risk of, 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 of they, they wanted to get Jesus into the business of trying to rank all the legal requirements and all the hierarchy of life and say, what are the most important commandments? And he, he references the nature of God very clearly. There's just one big deal. And that's, 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 we love one another. And, uh, uh, I think that's pretty good. Good word. So, thank you. So, Aaron, are you going to say something? No, you're, you're. I'm on a roll. You're on a roll. <laughs> so, 
So he told you or taught you that there are some things more important than you are, i.e. the kingdom of God, the larger things. What else? What other kinds of lessons did you learn from him? Oh, well, that, that's a transcendent lesson. Right? You know that life has consequences. I think the book starts out with a story of my father flying. Uh, he, he and a group of other professors at uh, Central Bible College all joined together and bought a little rickety old airplane. And they went flying. Your, your dad was well familiar with that community because we lived next door to you, or I think it was. Close enough. Anyhow, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. And uh, I remember going up in the airplane and my father was obviously piloting and this was one of those Piper Cub type things where the real pilot sat in the back seat and they set some dummy in the front seat. My father said, see that stick in front of you? Because there was no steering wheel, it's just yeah. a stick. He says, grab hold of that and uh, push it forward, John. Boom, I pushed it forward and the thing went into a dive. And uh, I don't know what he was teaching me except that you better be careful what you do Life has major consequences. I think he was also just setting clear the rules of that particular flight. Don't mess around with the controls or we could all end up in a heap <laughs> on the ground. Although uh, the, the, those planes flew so uh, gently yeah. that uh, guys were, you know, they were landing these things in cow pastures and other places and, right. and uh, navigation and was amazing. Uh, the technology of today is just so vastly different. But that's a kind of that's another kind of life has consequence. Of course, I believe my personal idea is that consequence is, is perhaps the greatest gift of God's love. His love is not to rescue us from our consequences in a in a fundamental sense. It's to have consequence because if. You know, there is a modern philosophy that you're free if you don't have to worry about the consequences. You can do anything you want. Well, the absence of consequence defines meaninglessness. It does not define freedom. Mm -hmm. And if what you do doesn't make a difference, you're meaningless. And I don't care where you are in the world or who you are. I think we all want to have meaning. We want to have consequence. And one of my dad's sort of quick lessons when I was a very young child in an airplane is that you can have consequence. You have to be careful what you do. And, of course, that's the difference for me as a politician, the difference between socialism and capitalism is capitalism, you get rewarded for what you do. In socialism, everybody gets the same reward. There's not very much to pass around in socialism. Uh, because once you tell everybody, it doesn't matter whether they work or whether they're lazy or whether they're productive or indolent. No, you know, it's like what happens in Venezuela. Everybody loses weight and they don't have any, you know, the consequences from from believing that you can do nothing and still have all the benefits. You can't. And God, God tosses Adam and Eve out of the garden because of the consequence of a decision they made. So there's a fundamental idea in life that what you do makes a difference. And you can wreck your life. Now, the beautiful part about God is that his love provides a basis for a rescue after the wreck. Yeah, that's good. John, one of the th things you share in the book is about, you shared about your father um, 
instilling in you was the pursuit of noble aspirations. And you you share that there's probably, that's one of the few thing, one of the major things that a father can instill in his children is, is that desire for this pursuit of noble aspirations. Can you talk a little bit about how your father influenced you in that and noble aspirations? Yeah, I'm not sure that he was, it was, I'm not sure this wasn't what would be referred to as a bank shot. Hmm. Uh, my father, uh, you know, I, and I guess for those, it's, for it, it's said, John, for those listening around the world who may not understand basketball language, can you just, can you elaborate on that? Just a, Well, just, instead of shooting it straight at the, at the basket, you shoot it off the backboard and have it bounce it. That's a bank shot. Okay. And, uh, the, uh, and I think preachers engage in this a lot. They they say that they're praying, but they're really uh, preaching. They're preaching. They're preaching over God's shoulder, so to speak. I'm, now, dear God, I'm telling you, I'd like for these people to be better people and how to straighten up their ways. Well, and uh, my my father was kind of he had a habit of of I can remember him well kneeling in prayer and that's that's something we've lost and i just very seldom get on my knees which is terrible i think i can pray by thinking about stuff i i really think it's better to actually pray and but anyhow to focus on it but he would kneel and he would pray and he would pray that in this in in this day let us as a family pursue the things that are godly and the things that are noble things that are helpful to humanity, the things that, that um, would be uh, seen by Jesus if he, as he is sort of in the midst of us uh, as being valuable, noble, and, and elevating and nourishing, enriching, rather than things which... Uh, and, you know, if, you're, if you hear your dad asking God to inspire you to do that on a regular basis, I think... It, I think it has an effect on God because I think my dad was sincere, but it also had an effect on me as an eavesdropper uh, about uh, my, my dad cares about this so much that he's willing to talk to God about it. I, there is a sort of profound idea that if, if someone is talking to God, they should be pretty honest about things because God sees the sincerity of one's language and one's communication in a way. So if your dad's asking that you be inspired to do noble things that elevate rather than devalue humanity, uh, you figure he believes it. It's credible. And secondly, uh, there's some responsibility you feel that I better be doing this or my, my dad could be disappointed in, in not only in me, but in God not answering the prayers. It's, it's, it's sort of a complex situation, but all of it's good as far as I'm concerned. It, uh, and uh, obviously here I am, I'm knocking, I'll, I'll be as old as you are in, in another month, Dick. Yes. And uh, I, uh, I, feel, I still remember that. I virtually can hear those, those prayers. And, and of course, the, uh, the end of each prayer on a daily basis for my father was, I think, I'm, I'm not sure what the citation is in the Psalms. It's, 
maybe 14 something, but 1914, I think it is. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Well, when your father prays that, those are noble aspirations. The things that you say and that you do and the things you meditate on be acceptable in the sight of the creator of the universe, almighty God. Ah, I think, you know, the, 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 the psalmist said it with clarity, and my father repeated it with regularity. And, um, it, it had, you know, obviously it had a little effect on me. I can remember 60, 70, 70, some years ago. I'm not sure how much I remembered before I was five. Well, you know, I was, I was on a board with your daughter for some years. Your daughter is a very capable woman and wife and mom, University of Virginia Law School grad. And I remember in one of the board meetings asking her to close in prayer. And she got to the amen part. And she said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, you know, just the same thing. So this is generational. Apparently, what you got as a bank shot got banked twice. I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> one, of my, one of the images of your father that I have, and, and I've described your father as a practical mystic. A practical mystic is a person who's two inches off the floor but not off the wall, by my definition. Okay? He had this otherworldliness about him in his practice. And I was invited as a young, as you know, you were teaching. Um, I think business law, Southwest Missouri State, and I was a young church planter in Urbana, Illinois, near the University of Illinois. And I was invited to Evangel when your father, Evangel University in Springfield, when your father was president. And they said he'll be in, they didn't call it the green room, but whatever that room was that was the prep place before you went out to speak to the audience. And I walked in and your dad uh, wasn't standing there greeting me or hugging me or giving me a cup of coffee. I walked in and your father was in the corner, kneeling down with his face on the carpet, praying. And, and that, that image stays with me because he, could, he was, he was uh, wonderful in hospitality from my, from my remembrance. He was very engaging he, and he, he would draw you in. But at that moment in time with that mission in play, it, it was a it's an image that stayed with me all these years. And um, I, I just I just yeah. love that idea. Well, it's a marvelous thing, especially if he wasn't the one doing the speaking that day. I, when I'm when I'm supposed to speak and I'm not clear about what I have to say, I get desperate in prayer as well. But if I <laughs> maybe maybe he said, I got this guy Foth here, I better go. <laughs> face before the Lord. <laughs> and, 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 and ask, ask for divine intervention. So, uh, that's not it, Dick. I'm sorry I said that, but we're, uh, you know, our 70-year uh, acquaintance of, uh, of uh, razzing each other uh, just has to infect even times like this. But uh, yeah, my you know, as I mentioned earlier in, in our talk today, that my father frequently prayed on his knees, and uh, yeah. that's that's seldom seen. I mean, even there used used to be that a lot of churches people would actually kneel in prayer, 
And some of them became so formalized that they have the kneelers and everything, but uh, others were, you know, whatever. Uh, As you get into advancing decades like we are, you start to think about things and wonder what transitioned when and when did this become a la mode? So, so you're, you, you may be a politician and a governor and a senator and all of that, but you're also a musician. You, you love gospel music. You play the piano. You, was your dad a musician? Didn't, if I remember, didn't, didn't he? Yeah. He was just uh, almost one of these, uh, oh, I don't know what the word, the savants when it came to music. He could pick up an instrument and play it with some reasonable facility in virtually no time at all. Really? I remember one time we went to a man's house and the man had decided he wanted to become a musician. So he had purchased a couple mandolins and he was arduously trying to play the mandolin. And my dad was a trombone player and a, well, he played the trumpet and the trombone and the piano and stuff, but I don't know that he ever played the mandolin. And, and uh, the guy was struggling with a, a song, and my dad said, well, let me see that thing. And he went, picked around on it for a minute, and then he, then he just ripped off. I don't know what it was. Count your blessing went upon life's billows, you are tempest-tossed. And he just raced away playing this song on the thing. And, and uh, right then, the the uh, other individual who had been struggling with the music, his his wife was fixing dinner and she just yelled, dinner's ready because she, she didn't want this to go any further. It was, it, was, it was just a little bit embarrassing. My dad thought nothing of it. You know, hey, there's an instrument. I bet I can figure this out. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is what he... So he, I think it was his ability to be conceptual. He... Uh, figured out how you transposed from the piano to that instrument. And it's all a matter of moving your fingers to the right notes, one in one setting and another in another. Anyhow, I was, I was amused by that. I've never forgotten it. And I'm sure the other folks didn't forget it either. Well, I, you know, it sounds like he could have gone, gone over to Aaron's house back in West Virginia, sat on the right. And gathered a crowd. That's right. He could uh, he could have had some well, grass in, in West you know, Yeah, well, my dad did like that kind of music. And my dad was originally ordained in West Virginia, I think, at a wow. camp called Falling Waters. Yeah. Really? Which is really? uh I know that. Yeah. That's right. I got the call the call to be a missionary at Falling Waters um at a at a youth camp when I was 12 years old. So know that know that camp very, very well. Very, very well. Well, it's, uh, I've been there, but uh, somehow I either wasn't sensitive to the color. It didn't come for me. I did other things. <laughs> John, you share also one of the things that really stuck out to me. Um, you share about your dad. He, he was a leader, a, a pastor, a Bible school president, and, and traveled and the influence he had in people's lives. But you also shared about your life personally that um, you can never really know where you stand with someone until your capacity to benefit them has gone. How did your father help you that? Because that's a hard lesson, I think, um, to learn is trying to figure out, yeah, who your true friends are and who your true friends aren't. Um, and you share that in the book. 
Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. I haven't read the book for 25 years, so I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I remember. But, you know, it's a little bit like Harry Truman said in Washington, where people uh, always uh, buddy up to you because of the benefits you can sort of provide for them. He said, if you want a friend, buy a dog. Yeah, that's it. Because that's you it. can be sure that the dog, <laughs> that the, the dog, the dog's going to like you. But the dog's, frankly, the dog always likes the person in the family that feeds him. So uh, we uh, have to be a little bit careful about that as well. Although I, I have to admit, I, I may have learned as much from my dog as, as any person lately. I've got a dog that is just the most loyal, friendly, loving, forgiving and it doesn't have to be a genius. He doesn't have to be. He just has to be a, a companion and care about you. And, uh, well, Gus is, my dog's name is Gus. And uh, Dick has uh, seen Gus and witnessed him uh, and his universal goodwill. Uh, I, uh, I think, you know, I don't know what to say that you, when you, you know, Jesus had uh, 12 disciples, uh, maybe, and, and that's a limited group, but he had one who decided that the silver was more important to him than the relationship. Uh, and, and I guess Jesus understood that because he, and at the Last Supper, uh, more or less identified uh, Judas. But... Uh, maybe it's not a good idea to know who they are. Hmm. Maybe it's a good idea to try and keep, treat everyone with love and compassion and forgiveness, yeah. which Jesus probably knew Judas all along hmm. and um, exhibited to him uh, virtue based on the nature of Jesus and on the nature of God, not, virtue, not, not based on the nature of Judas. And I think the really important thing for us, if we seek to emulate or to imitate Jesus, is to uh, treat people based on the nature of God, not treat, treat people based on the nature of people. Yeah. And it's a little bit hard to welcome people whose uh, motives you have to question, but it's pretty clear that Jesus did for quite some time. You shared in that, I guess that's the idea of relationship. And you shared in that you talked about the dog, um, you know, if you need a friend, get a dog. But you also talked that you shared that your father really invested in relationships. That was most, the thing that was most important to him in his life was, is, was investing in relationships and how that impacted you. Um, and it, it just really stuck out to me in a day and age where people, you know, we invest in so many things, this, that how his, impact and love for people and that he trusted people. He led with trust. You share that in the book that your dad led, led with trust. And it was just really a challenge for me as a father yeah. to um, lead with trust and try from, to instill that in my children. And then also for my children to believe that relationships are the most important thing that I can have on this earth. So it was impactful. Yeah. Well, the word relationship is, is a way of describing God. The Trinity is a relationship. And, uh, I, you know, Dick mentioned my affection for music, and I think of the Trinity as three-part harmony, that they are not identical, 
but they are harmonic. They are not the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have have independent ministries in some mystical way, uh, but they're never in conflict. And that's the difference between unity, which provides a basis of respecting differences that are harmonic. But and and it would be far worse if it was uniformity. And I think, in a way, we as human beings are not uniform, but we can have unity around uh, fundamental values. And I think the, so I guess really, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed from, just existed, because not from a time they're eternal, but uh, it becomes four-part harmony when some person that God created chooses to be in unity with the Father. And a, a, a choice-based unity is something that's really special because it's not automatic. It's not existential. It's, it's behavioral and based on, uh, on a, an, it's intentional. So an intentional unity with the Father. And I think there's place in the, in the Bible where it says that when people make the right choice, the angels rejoice. And there's another place in the book, I think, of Zephaniah, where it says, God rejoices over us with singing. Yeah. Uh, that, that must be when, when there is an intentional choice to become unified and to be in unity with. Not to be necessarily uniform. We can't be uniform with God. We're not God. He's bigger, better, and all that other stuff. Hey, Dick, I'm sorry to go waxing in this direction. No, so no, you're back I, on. I was just, I was, I was thinking as I've listened to you talk this morning, and you and I have spent more hours together than you probably want, but I, but I just impressed again that because of relationship, many of the lessons we learn are not things that are articulated in some particular thing, like here's these four things that I'm going to post on the refrigerator, but it's because we spend time and I get it by osmosis. You know, when I think about your father, I had the privilege over the years of traveling to numbers of continents and meeting people who, and this is when you were in government. This is would, This would be when you were either governor of Missouri or you were senator or attorney general of the United States. Um, and and I'd say something about you, and oftentimes, especially if they were a little older, they would say, well, I don't know John, but I knew his dad. And uh, his dad came and did a, a series of meetings, and it changed my life. He, he, this one thing he said, or these things. And so there's that impact. But he, your father, <clears throat> when I was a young college president, they would have these gatherings. <clears throat> Excuse me. They would have these gatherings that would be um, for leaders around the country once a year, and they'd have them at fancy hotels. And when I think of when I think of you, one of the things I think of with regard to money is frugality. You're not a big spender. Am I fair in saying that? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's simple. It's, yes or no? Pretty good. Yeah. Tighter than the bark on a tree is what most people say, but <laughs> squeeze as they used to say, squeeze a buffalo nickel and make it holler. Well, Ruth and I are standing in line at this fancy hotel. This it's our first of these big events. 
and we're young. We're in our mid-30s. Your dad is iconic. He had been president or was of four colleges or universities. And we hear this voice behind us, and it's your parents. And your dad says, so, Dick and Ruth, where are you going for dinner? We said, well, you know, we thought we might eat here. And this is, you know, this is 30 years ago. We're at a hotel even then. Your hamburger would cost 12 bucks, $12, you know. And we said, well, we're, not, we're probably here, but we don't know. And he said, well, Grace and I have your mom. He said, we, we have some coupons, coupons for Burger King. Would you like to go with us? And you, that moment, you, you know, one moment that I remember is him praying in the corner. The other moment I remember is going to Burger King with your folks because they, they, they value a dollar in a certain way. And let's not spend it frivolously. So uh, you probably picked that up by osmosis, did you? Yeah, uh, they, you know, uh, my mother was, uh, she knew how to water the soup or stretch whatever we had people in our home all the time who were not members of our family sure. and there was an ethic of hospitality and i would say it, it more an ethic of hospitality so they came to your house it wasn't going to the pancake house or the denny's or or <clears throat> the calico kitchen or whatever you call these things after church it was you you know and um I, I missed that a great deal, but, and, you know, and my mother could hold it and she could squeeze a dollar to the Eagle grinned as well as the Buffalo moaned. It just, uh, so yeah, that, that was part of it. I think there were, you know, the assemblies of God as a fellowship was not as prosperous uh, at least. And, and, um, expense account was, uh, I don't even know if it was in the vocabulary of a lot of people. So it was frugality and uh, frugality and sometimes can match fellowship in the way that that is not by the expense account. The expense account tends to take people to places where they have to uh, create an image or support an image. And and in the other sense, once the imagery is all gone, it's kind of hard to maintain a hoity-toity image at Burger King. So... You, you you may have access to a person's character and relationship in a more profound way in a less ostentatious setting. <laughs> well, uh, Aaron, unless you have other questions, I, I have a couple of things I'd like to sort of help land this plane. Would that be all right? Sounds great. I don't want to I don't want to shove the stick and take us into the ground. No. I just want to land the plane. Nose up. Sounds good. So. Uh, John, one of the one of the things in just <clears throat> thinking about your father, we live in a day when people talk about thought leaders and influencers. Um, over the last year, and you were party to a couple of these, we had um, conversations by Zoom with our dear friend, Dr. Robert Cooley. Mm -hmm. Dean at Evangel University. He he was an archaeology professor at Wheaton. He ended up being, for almost 20 years, being president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Well, on April 1st at 3.30 in the morning, he went home to his reward. And just a few days before that, we chatted with him. But when you asked Robert Cooley, who was the who was a single one of the single greatest influences in his whole life and career? 
he said J. Robert Ashcroft, because he said that the kingdom of God is larger than your particular denomination or slice of the pie. Never forget that, Bob. That was it. And I've, I've heard Bob Cooley say that a number of times. And there were just folks around the world who would say that same thing about your father. But when your father was aging and was in ill health was when you were elected as senator from Missouri uh, starting in 1994, I believe, uh, to be United States senator. And you came in January of that year, I think it was January, to be sworn in, and your father and mother came with you. Uh, could you just sort of outline that, those couple of days for us very quickly as we wrap this up? Because I think that symbolizes a lot of who your dad is. Well, my dad uh, wanted to uh, come. He had told me not to let Washington and its uh, selfish approach to life uh, control me. And so he said, the spirit of Washington is arrogance, is what he said. And the spirit of Christ is humility. Put on the spirit of Christ. So he came to sort of supervise that and to pound that into me, whether or not it was successful or not, someone else would have to say. And uh, I had intended and hoped that there would be a service of dedication, a church service, a spiritual event prior to taking the oath of office. Um, I had arranged for services like that in advance of my taking the oath as a, as governor and my previous settings as a state official. So, and it turns out that Dick Halverson, the chaplain of the Senate, was ill at the time, and they didn't have such a service in Washington. So we arranged, and you were a part of it, to arrange to have a little time together as a devotion before I would take the oath. And we... Uh, uh, gathered together in a, a, a house and uh, with a dozen or more people and, and uh, to pray and ask God to help me reflect the values that my father would want profoundly, or, or at least substantially, he wanted to be reflected in me. And um, so as we began to uh, end the meeting and to have a prayer, uh, I, I, I was kneeling and I was to be anointed in some way, sort of like David would have been a little oil and, and people lay hands on me, which I believe just to be the, uh, a very nice tradition of, of asking that a person reflect the, the right values. And um, my father was in a sofa and uh, he was pretty ill at the time. He had, uh, had a weakened heart. And he began struggling to get out of the sofa in order to pray and stand with the rest. At least I thought he wanted to stand with the rest and put hands, his hands on me uh, and lay hands on me in the sense of inviting God's presence and blessing and the spirit of Christ in what I would do in Washington. And he started to struggle to get out of the sofa to sort of boost himself out of the sofa and he couldn't do it. And I said, Dad, you don't have to struggle to stand and pray over me. And he said, I'm not struggling to stand. I'm struggling to kneel. And he rolled then out of the sofa onto the floor. That must have, for your prior experience, having seen him on the floor in the corner of the office, that may have been a flashback. 
But this idea of, of uh, it captured my imagination, the phrase struggling to kneel. I think if more fathers were to deal with their sons and daughters kneel, knee to knee instead of eyeball to eyeball or nose to nose, as they say in confrontational language. Or, but if we were to be knee to knee and join in prayer and inviting the spirit and presence of God into the lives of our children, it may have a profound impact. And it certainly was an indelible mark for me. My father then attended my swearing-in ceremony and uh, went home, but before he got home, he died on his way home. So it was one of those things of profound significance that had an exclamation point that was beyond... Uh, you know, there's a, something they say now you sort of, when you're through talking, you drop the mic as a, as yeah. a uh, way of uh, saying, that's it, that's profound, there's nothing more to be said. Well, my father didn't drop the mic, he went to be with the Lord before he got home. And uh, that's a mark that'll never uh, be absent from my life. You know, the night before that, that service in that little house, that time, uh, we had a little dinner and Ruth and I were delighted to be invited to be with your family and and uh, your father, and you know this, called me over and said, Dick, um, uh, I need something from you. And I said, what's that, uh, Dr. Ashcroft? He said, when, um, when John gets permanent offices, because he doesn't have permanent offices yet, would you work with him and just do a sort of a dedication time? in the offices, go from office to office, if you will, and pray, do, structure a little something to be able to do that with John and whomever else he invites. And I said, well, what, I mean, you can just come back and do that, uh, Dr. Ashcroft, because I, I know John would love that. He said, no, no, I'm not, I won't be doing that, um, but I'd like you to do that if you would. So it was, I think it was probably two in the morning that next morning, as he was flying home, that our phone rang. We didn't have cell phones, and it was your brother, your older brother, Bob, saying that in Kansas City, after dinner that evening, your father had been struggling. He took him to the hospital, and he had, he had passed away. And so I had both the duty and the honor of coming to your place. You were in a little rented apartment up above a garage on Capitol Hill, and I knocked on the door. And you came to the door and through, it's wintertime, so you have those screen doors that are really glass doors. And I remember you opening the door and just looking at me and saying, Dick, is it dad? And I said, yes. And you invited me in and we had tea and a, maybe a muffin over the next hour or two. And with tears and, and with some uh, good humor at certain points, just got to sit and tell stories about your father and listen to stories about your father. And that moment, I think for me, was one of the great honors of my life to be able to be with you and Janet in that moment in time and, uh, and reflect on your father. Just like this, this uh, conversation we're having here, anytime you can reflect on the life of a, of, of a man who honored God and honored his family, and uh, infected them with a holy contagion. That's a that's a huge 
it's a huge thing. So, John, thank you for doing this with us. I think Aaron may have something to say, and I don't want to get in the way of that. But um, I just want to thank I just want to thank you both for being with us today. It's an honor to be with Wisdom and to enjoy it. And um, John, would you pray for the fathers that are listening into this podcast today? Just a prayer of blessing over them, and maybe a challenge that, um, as you shared, that uh, as fathers we will be more knee to knee than we are eye to eye, nose to nose, and um, that's a powerful challenge for all of us. And dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the idea, the concept that we refer to you as Father. And it is both comforting and challenging to us who are fathers to try to find a way to fit into that category that you have referred to as your own. And we lift up every father and every parent and those who will someday become fathers. And we ask that your spirit would energize us and fill us with an awareness of what it means to be a father and to foster in those with whom we work and with whom we live the values that are expressed in the fatherhood of God and in the life of Jesus Christ. So we come to you now with gratitude and in an aspiration that would be what you would have us to be. And we just conclude by saying, let the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen.